welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 76. Good night, gaming. Well, welcome back to another episode. I'm Albert, and we have Julius again. Hi there, everybody. Tonight's episode is an interesting one. We're going to cover a game I've never played. That's probably the first time I'm doing that. I think it is. But I've played it a lot, so I think you guys are definitely going to enjoy the review. So let's start with a quick shout-out. I'd like to say hey to Mike M. He uh, won a copy of Castle Ravenloft for me on BGG and the One Player Guild Days, a solitaire games chain of generosity. If you haven't done one of these, the idea is um, one person listed a game on this geek list and offered it up. Anybody that was interested in the game could sign their, could add their name to the geek list, and at whatever date he chose, he raffled off that game to one of the people who won it. That person then gets a game and raffles off some other game. And then the process just keeps going on, so everybody's always getting a game and giving off something that they have. So there is one geek list that's specifically for solitaire games, and I want a copy of Ghost Stories from that, so I gave away a copy of Castle Ravenloft. And the winner was Mike M. Cool for my game. Sounds like an awesome game to have won a copy of. So if you, we'll include links to the to the Chain of Generosity Geek List in case anybody else wants to participate and check it out. I know that usually for the Solo Games Chain of Generosity Geek List, there's a number of different chains that are going at once. So you'll see a number of different things available for if you're interested and you want to continue participating in the, in the chain. You can try and speak out for any of those. I know that some of those are located in the U.S., some of those are located in Europe. So hopefully you'll be able to find something of interest to you. And I know that this sort of niceness, spread the love sort of feeling is one of the reasons why I like the One Player Guild. Another nice thing that I like on the Guild is the Secret Soloist 2015 Gift Exchange, um, where everyone will sign up, or anyone who's interested will sign up, and get the chance to give a gift to another person on the guild and share the love, share a special gift with someone else on the solo, on the one player guild. That's right. I, I participated in the last year. It was a lot of fun. Um, you put your name into a hat and everybody is then assigned a secret target. So you don't know who you've been assigned. And at that point, you could start taunting the person with the, the secret soloist BGG account, find out, just harass them and have fun with them. Nice harassment please. And, uh, you know, send them some games. That's just a lot of fun to be in. I know that I was not involved last year. This is actually my first time being involved in a gift exchange. Usually I see these gift exchanges coming up around the Christmas season. And being that I'm Jewish, I've never been particularly interested in one quite so Christmas targeted. But this one, now that it's happening in the middle of the year, and also that's happening just for the soloists guild over on the one player guild, I'm definitely interested in signing up. So I'm joining this year. Excellent. Excellent. Look forward to seeing how it comes out. The, when, what are the deadlines for it? So the deadline for the sign-up is going to be until March 31st. After March 31st, Ryan S., who's organizing the, the uh, exchange, is going to be closing out the registration, and they're going to be assigning targets. And then you'll have another two weeks to start getting in chat with your secret soloist assignee, and then send them a gift. or any other sort of arrangements you might work on, but usually the deadline is going to be by the 17th of May. Okay. And so then the whole thing hopefully is wrapping probably by the end of May. It should. Okay. Should we go ahead and jump into the news? I was already considering this. <laughs> okay. You're right. That's a good point. Uh, 
But let's jump into the full set of the notes. <laughs> the rest of it, okay. The uh, the one other non-Kickstarter item... Oh, no, there's, only, there's a couple of non-Kickstarter Nope, items. we got a few now. Okay. I know, Kickstarter's been really big this month, but we actually do have some news which isn't Kickstarter. <laughs> That's right, okay. Uh, so first up, Chaosium Games has released a free solitaire adventure for Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. It's called Alone Against the Flames. This is similar to the old adventures that they had in the past. There's a Alone Against the Wendigo, and I think there's one or two others. And these are paragraph-type adventures, sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure or a fighting fantasy book, but a, a bit bigger. This one actually has over 250 entries in it. And uh, for this, you actually get the Kafka Thuhu rulebook. You make a character, and then you take that character you created through. So it's a, using a full RPG character. Now, you don't need the full game if you don't have a copy of it. There are free rules. You can download that also from Chaosium's website. So yeah, definitely check that out. That looks really cool, and it's neat to see that they've started this up again after over 20 years, I think. Have you played this, Albert? I haven't played it. I did download it to check it out. I haven't tried it. I did try the one out years and years ago. And it's fun. Like I said, it's very much like a fighting fantasy game book. Are you intending on printing off a whole thing or just using it from a computer? Uh, probably from the computer. I tend to prefer playing, printing stuff out, but that's a lot of pages. I imagine. I think, yeah, I think it's like 30 or 40 pages, if I remember right. Um, next up, the game Preconquista by David Kershaw was, uh, it was in last year's, uh, print and play solitaire design contest and actually won the war game category. Uh, it has been, it has been published by White Dog Games and was just released, I think last week. Um, so check that out. This is by the, the same designer of Vietnam Solitaire, ACW Solitaire, Solitaire Caesar, and a few other games. Um, you could get it as a polybag game, you could get it boxed, or you could actually download a print and play edition. From the website. Now, I believe the free edition is still available. The uh, the newer edition has improved artwork and cleaned up rules. So I believe that this Reconquista was actually one of last year's solo PMP contest. It won the it won the war game category in the contest last year. Very cool. Well, I'm glad to see that we're having published designs coming out of that contest, both with this and Maquis. Maquis was uh, published recently or going to be published? Well, my key was published as an app, which okay. at the very least to me counts as publishing. Okay. Just publishing possibly for a different audience, <laughs> but publishing. So last piece of news is, or last piece of non-Kickstarter news is the game Bullfrog was designed originally with a solitaire expansion. Now I know that for those who backed Bullfrogs on Kickstarter, you were able to get the solitaire expansion for an additional $8 cost. That solitaire expansion is now being made available through the BGG store, in addition to being available through the designer's website, Thunderworks Game. And you can use this solitaire expansion to take Bullfrogs, which is listed on the box as a two-to-four player game, and also allow it to be played solo. And the way the solitaire expansion works is it comes with two sets of dice, which are used to control the AI, basically. You roll the dice, and that determines whether or not the AI's focus is going to be moving to a different card and how many actions the AI will get to take. And the AI, which is called Isaac, Isaac will get to either knock off your frogs or put down more frogs, and you'll have to fight against him using your cards as tactically as possible to be able to take over more of the lily pads in the pond. I'm a fan of it, and I know that I did back it. And I spoke with Keith Mateka, the 
games designer, and he was happy to offer to all of our listeners a special coupon code to get a $2 off your purchase on the Thunderworks Games website, which, if you used it for the solo expansion, would actually make the solo expansion free shipping. Now, that coupon code is one player podcast. Just entered into the Thunderworks Games website and you get a special $2 off just for our listeners. Excellent. That's very cool of them. So, moving on to Kickstarter. Man, has this been a busy month for Kickstarter? I know that we included some new Kickstarters that were coming out in our last podcast, but there have been so many Kickstarters that support one player coming out this last month. I am just blown away by how many there are. That really is crazy. It's, it's just. All of a sudden, it's everywhere. Almost everyone you look at, and it's like, oh, there's another solitaire one. It's, it's before you're like, oh, this is great. There's a game that supports solitaire. I'm just going to back it. Now you got to actually pick and choose. Definitely have to pick and choose. I know that I'm not able. I'm actively watching many of these, and I know there's quite a few of them that I want to back. But there's so many out that I just can't back this many. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I know that there's so many that there previously was on the guild a special thread that would follow for listing all of those Kickstarters with one-player compatibility. So I'm going to be taking over that thread and hopefully being able to keep a timely update on which Kickstarters are out that support single-player options. And we're also going to be posting the information on our website on the oneplayerpodcast.com with a follow the button at the top for the Kickstarter report. I hope to keep it updated at least once a week, if not more often, but hopefully you'll be able to see there, and that'll list all of those Kickstarters, which are currently active and are one-player friendly. Let's go ahead and try and run down them for you guys on the podcast also. So the first one that we did report on last time was Between Two Cities. Now then, this is a tile draft game for two to seven players, which includes an Automa deck, which is used for single-player play. So since we discussed this last time more... I'm just going to mention that it's a $29 pledge to get the game, and that funding ends on March 16th. So if you want it, uh, it's got 48 hours from when we're recording, so you need to kind of hurry up. And hopefully we'll get this published right away, and you, you hear this in time for that. So the next thing that I want to talk about is Project is Project Dreamscape. Now, Project Dreamscape did not originally come with the solo variant, <clears throat> but they've gone ahead and added it in. And they've even got a new video playthrough available on the website for it. Project Dreamscape has an interesting set of art and initially reminded me of Onirim. I'm almost surprised it didn't get played into that universe if they couldn't have worked it out with, uh, with Z-Man. But Project Dreamscape, the idea is that you are a dreamer as part of an experiment in being able to control your dreams. And for the competitive version of the game, whoever can control their dreams the best will be theoretically hired by the Project Dreamscape. So you're having to collect cards and arrange them in a tableau in front of you and have the dream types match along along your tableau so that you can score enough points. So when you're playing it solo, so you now get to use that just against yourself and balancing it off with the resources that you buy, because the buying having an extra dollar to be able to buy more things counts against you as a point at the end of the game. So when you're playing it solo, you're challenged to be able to play the game yourself and maximize your points. And there is a full playthrough of how to play the game solo available on the Kickstarter. Okay. And this was also playtested a lot on the One Player Guild. There was a playtest thread there, and I know a lot of people participated and really enjoyed it. 
So this one is actually also low cost. It's only a $16 pledge to get the game. And it's ending soon. Also, the ending, uh, the funding on this one is going to end on March 18th. Were you involved in playtesting this one? I did not. I kept, I followed the thread, but I just didn't have time to do any playtesting. But it, it sounds like there's some really interesting mechanics in there where we, you're juggling and making a lot of choices trying to decide the right way to play. And it sounds like there isn't ever just the right way to do it. It's just a lot of strategy involved. So the next one that's up is Bottom of the Ninth, which is a card and dice game designed by Dice Hate Me Games, or excuse me, published by Dice Hate Me Games, that is designed to give you the feeling of baseball's final inning. Now then, practically this one is supposed to be a two-player game. And Richard Lanius got a hold of this game earlier before, and according to the Kickstarter page, he liked the game so much and came up with a solo variant for it, which is going to come with a whole extra deck for use with this solo variant. Now, just as a brief mention, I want to give a shout-out to those Kickstarter people that are actually including special components to help maximize the type of play for their game. I know that there are some other solo, other games out there that have solo variants, and they don't necessarily include any specific components for increasing the complexity or making better the solo game. But I know that there's some other games, for instance, Keith Mateka with his Bullfrogs or Bob of the Ninth, but they're actually creating a whole set of special solo components to enhance the solo play. And I appreciate those designers that are doing that. And I want to call out Bob of the Ninth and Dice Hate Me Games for specifically having a special set, a special deck that is used to make the solo play better. I know that I personally was concerned with the way that Bob of the Ninth would play solo because it seemed to me originally I didn't understand how you would play Bob of the Ninth solo. The whole idea of Bob of the Ninth is that you start off and you have a stare down where you and your opponent, assuming you're playing this against someone, will both try and predict the other person's type of pitch. So you might be pitching low and away or and try to convince the other guy just in a stare down, picking up straight out of baseball, that you're not doing low away, you're doing high and inside. And you fake him out and try and make his next run, his next pitch, his next hit, be a worse scoring hit. And then assuming he does hit, so then there's a quick dice off where both of you roll dice as fast as you can until one person can either get safe or one person can get out. And I had no idea how it was that they were going to possibly pull this off in solo. So I actually went and sent an email over to the designer, Mike Mullins, who sent me a full description for how it is that the game will be played solo. According to Mike Mullins, the idea of this card deck is that there's a set of scenario cards, condition cards, and one reminder card to tell you how to work everything. And these scenario cards, you'll play more or less of them, depending upon how long of a game you want to play. And you have to win, like, let's say you're playing an easy game and you only pick two or three. So then your job is to be able to get through all three of those scenarios. And if you do, so then you'll be able to keep your job. So, for example, one of those scenarios he sent me is called Small Ball, where you're down one with a runner on first. And you'll face off against a random pitcher, and you have to create a batting lineup to be able to score on that pitcher. And those eight cards, the eight scenario cards, also give you the results of the stare down, whether or not it's going to be high and inside or low and away, whichever one 
or high and away, whichever one it is that you're doing. And you'll draw one of those out at random, and then you have to guess which one is coming along. So it's almost like you're trying to take advantage of the game's built deck. You'll know which ones have been pulled, and you'll have to think about, well, what are the chances it's going to be this one? How bad will it be? What if they pull their ace pitch? Do I need to protect against their ace pitch? And you always need to be prepared and thinking about which one it is that could come out and what could happen to the stare down. So the deck allows you to play as if you're playing against a real player and trying to predict what it is that the deck will throw at you. More random, but you still have to start thinking about what could come and keep track of it. Mike Mullins, I asked him whether or not he felt that this is a good solo-only purchase, or whether that's just a throwaway. He thinks that the adjustable, the adjustable length of the campaign, the different scenarios and the condition combos, the different pitchers, the, the whole hitting lineup that you have to do. I know that there's a number of stretch goals for the game that give you different batters. They're going to be including some classic batters and some batters from Sentinels of the Multiverse. So with all these different batters and these different hitting lineups, he felt that it's a justified soul only purchase. Now I have not personally played the game, but from his review, Granted, he is the designer, but from his review, he thinks that it's a good solo-only purchase. And I'll tell you, it sounds like it's going to be a winner of a game. It looks really good. The artwork is fantastic. It's a lot of fun, and those cards just look so fantastic. I love the backs. Old, faded color. I remember having cards like that. You know, I'm not a sports fan, really, honestly, but I'm tempted by this game. I agree. I've never been much of a baseball fan, but the design and the sound of it, and also the cards look like classic baseball cards. And it just looks like a really pretty awesome game. So I know that this one, the game itself will be included with a $20 pledge. And the funding is going to be ending on March 26th, if you're interested in getting a copy for yourself or looking more into it. There is also print-and-play available for the multiplayer version of the game. There is no print-and-play yet available for the solo version of the game. Cool, okay. So, next one is Novo Etes. I don't really know how to pronounce it, and they don't have written how you're supposed to. Novo Etes? Novo Etes. I don't know, but it looks cool. This one is supposed to be inspired by things like fa- Final Fantasy Tactics. Did you ever play Final Fantasy Tactics? Uh, no, I think I played some Final Fantasy game, but I don't remember it that well. It, it didn't click with me. Well, I know that I did play Final Fantasy Tactics, and I enjoyed it. Um, I wish they had a gameplay preview for this game. Or, I mean, I wish they would just send it to me so that I could play it. But anyway, <laughs> the idea of this game is that you're playing a tactical game against an AI opponent. No matter how many players it is that you play, you are playing against a, an AI opponent. This is a cooperative game. And the AI component is controlled through the um, different cards, I think. Yeah, through the different cards in the game that allow you to program how it is that the various enemies are going to be playing. Now, then, this is a minis game, and the minis also look very nice. The heroes, the novice, the scum, the apprentice, and the squire. Nice, highly detailed models. They look very pretty. And the way the game is set up, it looks like it plays nicely, and it looks like a pretty game. And if they manage to have it actually play like Final Fantasy Tactics, I'm interested. It's an expensive pledged game, though. The A minimum $100 pledge is required to get in on the game, which does get you both the base game 
and an exclusive expansion in addition to any of the unlocked goals. And this one is going to be funding until March 27th. Okay, it looks really nice. What is the setting of this one? It's it's a fantasy setting, sort of, but it looks sort of... Oh, what's... Well, I can't decide what time period it looks like. Well, if I could read from the Kickstarter, the setting of Nova Atis is based upon a blend of fantasy and real-world Renaissance elements, which, again, also spoke to me from the Final Fantasy idea, because you also see a lot in Final Fantasy how they'll mix up different sort of steampunk or cyberpunk sometimes, and classic fantasy and summons and magic, and they'll mix everything all together in. And so for me, having something that feels like you're playing Final Fantasy, if they if it actually does feel like you're playing Final Fantasy, sounds to me like it would be very cool. Okay, nice one. Yeah, these look good. Next one up, and I'll be briefer on this one, is Myth Journeyman, which is the expansion for Myth, which was a Kickstarter from, I think, a year ago, maybe. Sounds about right. But but this is two new uh, boxed expansions, and they're also including the second edition printed components. So if you just want the second edition printed components, you can get that for $6 if you want... More stuff, if you want the expansions, it's going to be a full $60. So if you're interested in fixing Myth, you can get $6 to reprint the second edition components. I've heard this is a really good game. People have played it and have uh, worked their way through the rules. They've said it's been hard to get through the rules and figure out the game, but it's been worth the effort. A lot of people really enjoy it. I have not yet played it. I heard way back then that they totally flubbed up on the rules. Could be that with the second edition rules it would be better. We'll see. What, what I've read is they've really put a lot of effort into it, had a, a third party do the rules, and, and have really, really put a lot of effort into making it better. Got feedback from players and everything. And so I have a lot of faith that they've really, they're really serious about this. they put a lot of effort into really making this a much better game. I know that with my from my experience with playtesting some games, that I know that Sometimes writing the rules can be the hardest part of designing a game. Hopefully they'll get it right this time. So the next one that I want to talk about is Far Space Foundry, which is a game designed for one to four players. The idea when you're playing solo is simply that you don't play with anything multiplayer. All the other multiplayer just simply drops away and you're left able to navigate the foundry all by yourself. Is this a cooperative game? This is not a cooperative game. This is a competitive game where when you're playing by yourself, it, you're aiming to get as high a score as possible. I believe that in the rules, if you score 30 or more, it's considered a win, but you'll be just challenging yourself to get as high a score as possible. The game is unique. The game has a rondelle as the core mechanism, but you're also balancing your deck of hand and your management of your warehouse and your resources and planning ahead for what resources you'll have for the second phase of the game to be able to play well. There are a lot of mechanics, very unique design. I don't think I can definitely say I've never seen anything like it. The game looks very pretty with the different resources, very striking. And I like the look in it, of it. If you're interested in getting a taste of how it plays, I know that the designer is both offering to let people play it online and they're also having a group play by forum on the 
web page for on the BGG entry for the game. So you can get a good taste for the game if you're interested in backing it. It looks very neat. Yeah, because it's got this really neat, fanciful artwork, uh, sci-fi. There's one um, one alien who's got plants and stuff growing out of his uniform. The green alien. The green guys, yeah. Well, I know I try and play blue as much as possible, the ice-looking guys on this one. <laughs> I like their fuzzy sweaters. Well, I know that the brown ones also look cool, the rock-looking guys. But yeah, the art on it, the look of all the styles of things, looks looks nice. I know that for the one-player version, normally you're trying to compete with other people. And when you're playing the Rondell mechanics, that means that your shuttles will also be playing with everyone else's shuttles. So sometimes you'll have a whole plan set out, and the other players might come and interrupt it. So when you're playing single-player, that's kind of gone. And if that's a concern for you, so then that may be a concern, but I know that there are some other backers out there who will prefer to not have their whole plan, intricate plans get messed up by other players. And I know that's how the designer prefers to play it also. Now, the uh, four alien races, are they different? The four alien races are not different. Okay. okay, so next up is Airborne Commander. This is a design for solitaire game. It, it's being published by Stratamex Games. Again. Have you played this game before? I have not. I have not tried it, but I would like to. I'm backing it. I've been following it for a while. Okay, um, so this is a deck building game for one player. It was designed for one player. And uh, in it, you're a troop of airborne soldiers trying to get uh, through the battle. And you're basically playing against a deck of German uh, soldiers and obstacles and whatnot. And the goal is basically to get through the deck successfully before you're finished. So one thing I really like about this game is the artwork, the style looks like it's, you know, at first it almost looks like a watercolor sort of art, but I think it might be oils or something. It's just, but it's really nice pastel colors. It's very different and very striking. I think the, the buy-in price is pretty cheap. If you just want the one deck, it's 20, it's $25 and that includes shipping anywhere in the world. And funding on this game is going funding on this Kickstarter is going to be ending on April third. There's a there is a gameplay video. I don't know if it's maybe it's not on here, but it's definitely in BGG, and it is by um, Stephen Conway did the video, the playthrough video. And it looked cool. It looked good, yeah. It looked interesting. All right, I'll have to go watch that. So next up is Burgo Brothers, which is a cooperative game supporting one to four players, where you are planning a heist similar to the movie Ocean Eleven and a lighter level game where there's a set of currently as cards and possibly if a stretch goal is unlocked it's going to be full tiles and you lay out three floors to a bank and you're going to be moving your meeples around evading the guards trying to sneak your way through the different kind of rooms fingerprint rooms, stairs, tunnels Sneak your way through. Don't get caught until you're able to break through the bank vault and steal all the gold. Sneaky little game. Has a little bit of interesting gameplay to it. And costs $29 pledge to get the game. This one looks fun, and the box is shaped like a high-rise. Yeah, they had a vote going on for the different sorts of stretch goals that you could have, and so at one point in time they showed off the full high-rise that they had, which was an actual tiered, built, very premium 
type of idea where you put everything and you actually lay it out on a high rise. Not a real stretch goal. Not something they're including with the game, but it looks cool. <laughs> so funding on that one is going to be ending on April 4th. So next one we're going to be discussing briefly is Castle Assault, which is a battle card game for one to two players where you get to lead a faction using the cards similar to almost Summoner Wars, where you put the cards representing the units out on the table and move them along to beat down the other person's castle. When you're playing this one player, they've designed a specific campaign set with different scenarios and different victory conditions, and it only requires a single player to play when you're doing it that way. Now, again, I actually talked with the designer about the one-player campaign for this one because I had a couple of concerns that I brought up with him. The way it works is that you do have a random set of draw about where it is that the AI is going to be going, where it is that the which units the AI is going to be putting out. But there still is a specific scenario that determines how it is that you win, and the different scenarios are different. For example... There's one scenario where you have to smash the opponent's castle, or one where you have to destroy an overlord, or wipe out every monster on the board, or just survive for a certain amount of time. And so the different scenarios all feel different. Even if they're all scripted, they still feel very different. And each scenario will require, when you're using a different deck to beat it, it will require a different strategy to be able to get through it. The game can be played entirely in one player, and has a fair amount of replay because there's nine scenarios, there's six factions. So, you know, that between that, that's 54 different battles that you'll be able to play in. It doesn't replace the two-player mode. It doesn't feel like you're playing the two-player mode. But it does play good play. Cool, that sounds really neat. So with this one, it's going to be a $50 pledge to get the game, and funding is going to end on April 7th. Now, one last one that we want to talk about is Mistfall, which is another cooperative game which supports single-player entirely. It's primarily a card game where you have your card of hands and you run combos with your cards, all of which give you different abilities. Now, with this one, not only did I have a chance to talk with the designer, the designer wanted to come on the podcast. So we have the designer of Mistfall here to speak about the game. I'm here with Boise Kubatsky. Did I get that right? Yes, uh, pretty right. Boise Kubatsky. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Boise Kubatsky with NSKN Games. Currently, they have on Kickstarter Mistfall, a legendary adventure. Can you tell me something about NSKN Games? Well, NSKN Games was um, it was established in Romania a few years ago. It's a company right now. Um, with both um, Romanian and Polish employees. Uh, it's still a small company, but we are growing. And this is our third project on Kickstarter. Um, we also had Progress Evolution te of Technology last year. This year we had an expansion to Exodus Proxima Centauri, which is uh, one of our games as well. Last year we also had Versailles, which is more of a Euro game. The truth is that Mistful is a bit of a first venture into the um, more thematic adventure kind of um, genre. What led you guys to start breaking out into such a new field? Um, the truth is that I'm kind of a relatively new acquisition to NSKN Games, and I think that was 
uh, kind of one of the reasons to go ahead and try uh, something, try out something new. I had this idea for a game. Actually, I, I had a little more than an idea for a game when I came to NSKN, and we kind of decided together to um, go ahead and, and publish it. So you are the designer and developer for this game? Yes, I am the designer and partly the developer for Mistfall. And how long have you been designing Mistfall for? Well, this is kind of a complicated question because I've been kind of designing games for some time now, for a few years, although most of them were just, you know, designed for fun or I designed designed my own expansions for some out-of-print or obscure or broken games that I really wanted to play a little more of. But this one, I think I started uh, working on it a few years ago and uh, right now this is after a good few months of really, really solid work. Before that, there was um, work done, but I was just, you know, polishing the game probably not really expecting that much to publish it or maybe kind of wanting to publish it in the future. At one point, this opportunity opened up and then um, about uh, six, seven months ago, more intensive work started. But we could say that it was a few years uh, in kind of development. You were developing it for how long with NSKN Games? Oh, with NSKN Games, uh, we've been working closely on this uh, for the last about six or seven months, I'd say. And how did you meet up with NSKN? It's an interesting story because I used to write about board games for a Polish site about uh, board games, card games, uh, role-playing games, which is there no longer. And because of that, I was in uh, in the UK, on, on the UK Games Expo. And this is where I met uh, the people who turned out later live in Warsaw, and they at that time lived in Warsaw, the same place I lived in, but we needed to kind of, all of us needed to go to Birmingham to meet. So speaking of where you live, where are you now? Uh, right now I am in Warsaw, Poland, uh, at this point, pretty much as most of the NSKN team as well. And I know you mentioned it's pretty early over there, so I specifically want to thank you for uh, <laughs> staying up so late for this interview. No problem, my pleasure, really. So at what point in time did you actually start working together with NSKN? When did that all come together? Uh, it came together probably last year, somewhere in the beginning of, of last year. We actually started by, you know, playing games together, um, talking about a lot of stuff. Then I started working with NSKN on uh, the blog, providing a little bit of also help with uh, their other projects. And step by step... Uh, I went kind of deeper, um, basically coming fully on board after last year's Essen. Did you attend Essen? Oh yes, yes, we were there, and and it was uh, it was a pretty incredible experience. Essen was the time uh, when um, progress was ready. Basically, we had an Essen pickup option, so we had everything totally on time. So we had a lot of people coming in for progress. Uh, the game sold out. Actually, everything we had on our booth sold out and sold out um, quite quickly. So there was a lot of rush and a lot of people. It was an incredible experience last year, really. And, well, a great success. It was nice to be a part of it. <laughs> I'm sure. And congratulations on selling out. Hopefully you'll meet Thank the you. same success with Mistfall. Oh, yes, we, we, we do hope. And it's looking pretty, pretty nice looking at the Kickstarter at this point. So why did you decide to make a cooperative game this time instead of a competitive? Uh, 
Well, the truth is that I really, really like cooperative games. Um, I play games mostly with my wife, and she also likes the cooperative experience. So the truth is that cooperative games were always very close to my heart, and I'm always on the lookout for a good cooperative board game experience. What's your favorite cooperative game, then? Oh, that is a good question. I mean... Isn't that is a good question always a thing we say when we don't want no, no, don't know what to say? In my case, there is really a lot. I mean, uh, there are really a lot of great games. My first cooperative games was Shadows Over Camelot, and it's a game that's uh, has stayed in my collection ever since. When a lot of there was a lot of rotation, it's not a game I play uh, a lot today, but it's something I, I like to come back to. Uh, we both enjoy. Eldritch Horror, which is like Arkham Horror with a little bit of flash taken out and a little bit of agency added. And uh, actually, the last cooperative game I was incredibly impressed with and something that is kind of proudly in our collection now is um, Freedom the Underground Railroad. Wonderful, wonderful uh, game. Beautifully mixes like simple airtight design with being thematic, thought-provoking, um, probably it's it's close to my number one. Although, like I said, we we like a lot of them. There is Yggdrasil, which we came back to playing uh, after playing it in- intensively some some um, I don't know about eighteen or months ago or two years ago. Now we came back to playing it, and it's a lot of fun. We also have an old beat-up copy of Warhammer Quest, and that's also something we, we kind of enjoy. Lately, Shadows of Brimstone uh, also joined the the collection. It's so difficult to find the perfect cooperative game. I, I like them so much, it's like almost like choosing, you know, who of my children I would love the most, or something like this. I certainly understand the problem, and I definitely understand continuing to buy more and more of them. Yes, Definitely. Did any of those games inspire Mistfall or some aspects in it? Well, the truth is that the biggest inspiration for Mistfall probably was Middle-Earth Quest, so not a cooperative game. Uh, Middle-Earth Quest, it's uh, it's a fantasy flight game published a few years ago, a game that's, uh, that since has completely disappeared from the FFG roster, and a game that was both a great adventure, incredibly thematic, and at the same time kind of cerebral with a really innovative system I loved uh, where your cards would be your life pool, your movement, and your battle maneuvers. And that was, I think, the most direct and most important inspiration for, for Mistful at one point. I was very, very saddened when I saw that this game was not to be kind of continued, that there won't be any expansions, and that this uh, this beautiful idea for a for a clean and nice system was kind of disappearing into you know the night i know we've been discussing now mistfall but for those of our listeners who aren't so familiar with it can you just summarize mistfall oh yes mistfall is um a cooperative fantasy adventure game um which you can play solo you can also play with up to three friends so one to four players Uh, it's a game in which it's basically uh, a game in which you construct a modular board every time you play. You pick a hero. Every hero comes with a deck of starting uh, feats and starting gear, plus a deck 
of advanced feats which you can buy during the game, put into your hand directly and use them. Uh, you are kind of racing against the clock to basically find the main villain, the main bad guy of your of your quest, of your current quest, uh, and beat him up. On the way, you will have to navigate uh, through locations. Each location will come with a semi-random encounter, which uh, will generate the enemies for, me, for you, but it will also generate something like a little side quest, which will tell you what you have to do exactly to get kind of victoriously through that location to earn some rewards and to be able to, to heal a little bit and then go on. Uh, probably a very important element is also that your deck is both what you can do during the game, but it's also your life. So with every card you expend, your deck gets thinner. And then you have to find ways to actually return those cards to the deck. What is interesting, there is a little bit of deck building here because you buy new cards, you put them into your hand, then they go into your discard pile. When you kind of refresh the cards from the discard pile, you put them back under your deck, uh, thus not only building it, but stacking it as well, kind of constructing it the way you want to. So this this deck builder seems very different than normal. Here you have a lot of control over what's coming in your deck and how your deck is coming out. Well, the truth is that uh, apart from cooperative games, I also love adventure games. I kind of, I was drawn into gaming many, many years ago with Talisman. And as you know, Talisman is a game with minimal agency. And it has always bugged me a little bit with a lot of adventure games that it's very difficult to find this balance between the narrative aspect of the game and the agency it offers. I kind of wanted to create a game that would be very high when it comes to agency, where you could make a lot of the decisions. And Mistful is that game. It's a game that when you go in, when you have the enemies attacking you, when you have this encounter telling you what you need to do, if you find a way to deal with it, and usually you get the points resolve points, which you use to buy the advanced feats, you, you get the, the result for eliminating enemies. So basically the thing is that it's it's always kind of a puzzle, but if you find a way out of this situation, whether playing alone or with your friends, if you find the right way to, to do this, uh, you will succeed because there is no random factor there. You will be able, if basically if you can build it, you will you will make it. So you said that there's a puzzle aspect to Mistfall. Now, I know that later on in this episode, we're going to be reviewing Mage Knight, another popular fantasy game, which also is very much of a puzzle game. Is it the same type of puzzle as Mage Knight or different? Or have you played Mage Knight? Well, I have played Mage Knight, and actually it was a game I used to play a lot solo um, because of the because of the downtime and, and uh, because I, I kind of liked a lot of the ideas. If I'm to be completely frank, the feel of Mistful is a little different than Mage Knight. But in a way, if you're thinking about the puzzly aspect, in Mage Knight it's, it's also similar, that in many situations, if you can figure out a way, then randomness will not stop you. In Mistful, you have the added element of stacking your deck. So basically, the longer you play, the more aware you are of what is going to be coming back into your hand, uh, and when. Also what is important, in Mistful you get kind of two kinds of discards. One is just 
the discard pile. The other one is burial pile. And this is where cards go when they are expanded as wounds, basically. Uh, in Mistful, you play both with your hand and your discard pile, because when you get wounded, you can move cards from your discard pile. There is, when it comes to just the deck building aspect, and when it comes to working your hand, your deck, your discard pile, I think there is a little more to consider in Mistful than in Mage Knight. Then again, it's it's a game that um, is kind of simpler when it comes to movement between locations. Also, it's it's a game that basically creates some of the specific situations uh, with the encounter cards you draw. So there there is that the games are kind of similar. Although I think that if we started to discuss them in more detail, we'll, we'd find more things that would make them feel different than the things that would make them feel similar, I think. Well, i definitely like to focus some more on the detail of Mistfall, although I don't know if we need to compare them too much with Mage Knight. But you mentioned about the encounters. Is that where the source of randomness is in the game? What are the encounters like? An encounter card will basically do a few things in Mistful. The first thing, it will tell you which types, which type of enemies you will be facing. There are three types of locations and three enemy decks. Each of them is kind of tied to the location. When you draw encounters, you draw them until you find an encounter that actually fits the type of location you're in. And then the location will tell you exactly which enemies you are looking for, and it uses keywords. So basically, for example, uh, uh, an encounter may tell you to find skeletal enemies because it's about um, fighting skeletal enemies. So you're looking for enemies with the keyword skeleton. When you find a number, and the number is determined... Uh, by the number of players, there is this uh, there is this little symbol that uh, stands for the number of players, the number of heroes actually used. When you have this, basically, this will tell you how many enemies you will start with. An encounter card will also tell you how um, many reinforcements uh, will there be every turn. If you stay in the same place for more than one turn, if you have to deal with the encounter for more than one turn chances are that there will be some reinforcements coming in to help the enemies you are fighting uh, from the beginning. The encounter will also uh, give you some details about what to do to successfully finish it. Usually, killing everything that is a part of the encounter is an effective way to finish it. But sometimes it's it might be a bit too difficult, and most of the encounters give you an alternative way of dealing with it. Discarding some cards... Uh, attacking specifically the encounter card, um, expanding some of your actions, because uh, every turn you get one regular actions and any number of free actions. So sometimes to push forward, you will have to expand regular um, a regular action. Sometimes you will have to deal some damage to your hero to be able to proceed. So there are many different ways. And uh, this this is random in a sense, but by choosing the location you go into next you are also kind of deciding on the pool of encounters you will be drawing from and on the pool of enemies you will be receiving. And sometimes it's a valid decision because, for example, if you have a cleric in your party, uh, you're much less afraid of Deadlands locations, which usually come with undead creatures. And a cleric, if if she wants to, to be kind of this undead hunter and this undead um, hammer, this can be done quite easily with the cleric. Um, so basically, it's both a little bit of randomness, but this is setup randomness. You don't 
you get to get the random setup, then you get to make the decisions, and it's not random anymore after that. You mentioned a cleric that you brought bringing with your party. When you're playing solo, do you typically play with just one player? Oh, yes, definitely. One character? Uh, the game was built around this idea that if you want to play solo, you will just play with one hero. And each hero uh, should stand on their own in a, in a solo game, although some of them are a little more tricky when you play uh, solo. Obviously, if you're going to choose the shield bearer, which is basically your fighter archetype, and a character I usually kind of uh, say, if this is your first time playing, if you want to have a little easier or more straightforward game, go with the shield bearer because he can take some punishment, he can dish out some damage, and this is going to work relatively easily. Um, so basically, with that character, it might be a little easier with some of the encounters or with some of the enemies, or you can just go for the simple approach of trying to kill everything you, you see in front of you. With the more mushy characters, it gets uh, a little more complicated. And when you're playing the game solo, a lot of variety also comes from which hero <coughs> I'm sorry, which hero you decide to choose. Are you going to go, you know, like uh, all in with with the shield bearer, or maybe you want to go with the seeker, who is the rogue type, who has different tricks up his sleeve, or maybe you just want to have this raw magical power at your disposal of the mage, but then you have to remember that y you don't heal that well, so you can dispose of many enemies, but then you have to find a way to actually return some of the cards into your hand, and so on and so forth. So you can definitely play with one character, and any hero you choose should be a satisfying experience. How many heroes are included in the game? Right at this point, we have five heroes included in the game. We've started with four, but uh, as I said, we are the, the Kickstarter campaign is a little uh, after the 48-hour mark. We have already unlocked, uh, among the first stretch goals, we have unlocked a new hero. So at this point, we have five playable heroes in the game. So I'm glad that you decided to make solo work with just one character. What led you to focus on solo development for the game? Well, the truth is that oh, I forgot to mention to mention one of the one of the games we like a lot, a cooperative game, which is Sentinels of the Multiverse. I really enjoy this game. We both enjoy it, me and my wife. We only have one tiny problem with it. When we play it, we have to play two characters each. Because we, we can't play one character, one character. And that breaks Im immersion a little bit. If you want to play a thematic game, if you want to be a hero of a game, you kind of want to have this one character. You don't want any dummy players, you don't want any extra mechanisms or, you know, some wonky rules added. So what I wanted to do, the truth is that when I came up with the idea for the game, I started constructing the whole thing. I, I kind of had the idea... Uh, for the first uh, heroes and so on. But when I reached the point when I designed like a lot of stuff from the enemies pool and the encounters pool and a lot of stuff for the heroes, I just finished up one of the heroes and decided to take him for a spin to see if this is going to be the right experience. Later on, when I started creating more characters for the game, more heroes, or finishing the one I started, this would be the first test of a character. I would just take the new deck, sit down in front of a table, uh, pick a mission for Mistful, pick a quest, set it up, and play it with, with one hero. And it was always a very important goal for me to make each hero play well, because this is what I want. I want to immerse myself. I want to be 
kind of a character on being there and don't consider looking into two separate hands of cards and manage two separate decks and so on and so forth. It certainly sounds like the solo game has had a lot of playtesting that way. It's an advantage. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We've tested the game a lot. Um, we... We've tested it both, we had both blind tests and, and a lot of, you know, showing at conventions and, and presenting. But the first kind of level of testing was always, uh, me playing solo. Of course, obviously, we knew we need to add on a lot of other testing to that. And that's what we did. But that is true. I, I kind of attest myself to the fact that each hero plays pretty well solo. It's, it's always been an enjoyable experience. Which character is your favorite to play with? That is a very difficult question. Again, I think the the one I kind of designed the last would be the favorite to to play. <laughs> it's um, it was always fun to create a new character and take it for a spin. Um, in a way, I like I like the Seeker a lot as as my own character, but I I feel very well playing the Shield Bearer. I feel very well. Uh, playing the the cleric, so that probably would be my top three out of five. Again, <laughs> not really a definite choice. That's okay. In comparison to other games, how difficult is Mistfall? How how much of a beating are you going to get? Well, the truth is that the game. Uh, firstly, it depends on which quest you choose. If you choose the introductory quest, you should be able. Uh, if you choose the introductory quest and take the shield bearer as your first character, so. Uh, let's assume you, you are uh, new to Mistful, you should be able to win, more or less, maybe with a little bit of difficulty. Uh, the later quests get a little more difficult. Uh, it's not an extremely difficult cooperative game. I kind of wanted it to have this level that if you know that you will sit down and pay attention to what happens and have a, have, you know, uh, a good day when it comes to thinking and, and solving you should be able to win the game. So it's not very, very difficult, although it's it's not very, very easy. It's, I, it's not one of the most difficult. It's not, let's say, it's not the ghost stories level by far. It's, it's a little more accessible when it comes to winning. Is there any way for those people who want to start a challenge to increase the difficulty? Um, we are actually kind of working on this idea. I pretty much know how to do this and we probably will be kind of releasing a little more details about that in the future but yes there there are a few ways to increase the difficulty the probably the easiest one at this point is just starting with a little um with a little smaller shorter time limit to complete whatever you need to complete in the quest because resting allows you to heal if you deprive yourself of this you will have to kind of work your deck, your hand, your discard pile harder to be able to finish the quest. The different types of quests, do they have different rules between them? There are some rules, tweaks between different quests, uh, although the general idea is basically the same. You always need to get through a set of locations. Those locations usually start unrevealed, uh, you start with a revealed location like the, the goal location, the location with the final boss and the location you start from. The rest uh, of the locations are set up in a random fashion and they um, they 
begin the game face down. What happens in, in between differs a little bit. Sometimes you have to find something. Sometimes you just have to go, um, you just have to go to by the shortest route. Sometimes you have to, um, find specific locations in the grid and there are way to, ways to actually reveal locations without entering them. And obviously the final boss is different for every quest and you will have to kind of be ready for ready for someone who fights differently who has their own special abilities uh, these are this is what makes the quests varied between them but also as i said this kind of setup makes every you can play the same quest uh, two or three times in a row and every time you will get a different experience and I know that for some other games, such as Mage Knight, different fans have created special scenarios, fan-created scenarios. Do you believe that Mistfall would support fan-created scenarios? Definitely, yes. And if we, um, after publishing the game, have fans who want to create scenarios, and actually the game is created in such a way, it's constructed in such a way that... Um, adding new scenarios to it would be very easy. We will be happy to help out, to support, you know, we will be very happy with uh, any kind of this initiative from the fans. If anyone wants to create uh, a quest of their own, they are absolutely welcome to. And I think it should not be very difficult. All right. Uh, thank you very much for introducing us to Mistfall. We really appreciate you coming on to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much. It was It was really a pleasure. All right. And is there any last word you want to have for our listeners? What I'd actually like to add at the end that I'm a relatively new designer. I mean, I've been to the hobby for a long time, but it's such an incredible experience uh, to to create, to be a part of the business. It's it's a great thing to be a part of the hobby when you're a gamer. It's it's a fantastic thing when you're also someone who works on games because you get to know the generosity and the enthusiasm of people who are ready to um, work with you on your game, who are ready to test it, who are ready to lend some advice. I knew that people who play board games as a community are pretty, pretty great, but being where I am here, this is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen, and I'm going to use this opportunity to say thank you to all of the people who are our fans, to all of the people who support Mistful, and to all of the people who are simply awesome all that time. Thank you very much. And for all our listeners, Mistfall currently is funding on Kickstarter. A minimum pledge of $45 will get you the game, and it's going to finish funding on April 2nd. It's currently more than funded, and stretch goals are getting knocked down more and more every minute. Thank you again, Blase, for joining us. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It was a great pleasure. Welcome back. I uh, hope you enjoyed listening to that interview with Blaje Kubalki. Um, apologies if I mis- mispronounce your name. Uh, and now we're going to move on to this episode's game, which is Mage Knight the Board Game. This was designed by uh, and published by WizKids, makers of the Mage Knight, the Hero Clicks, and the Mage Knight Clicks, and all the different click games. And uh, I believe this is a game that uses clicks in it. I've never actually played it, but Julius has played it a lot, so... Well, it does use clicks, but only a teeny tiny bit. 
which I think I can say about a lot of the elements that they use just a bit. The, one of the advantages of Mage Knight, though, is the sum of its parts as opposed to all of its individuals. Let me start by introducing you guys to the game. Now then, more than likely, most of you have probably played Mage Knight. I know that Mage Knight came up as number one on the solo player's choice top 100. Number one shows that it probably is a pretty good game, but I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of discussion on that. For tonight, I think that we should just discuss the base game and not leave out all of the different expansions. I know that there's also one expansion coming up soon. Don't know exactly when it's coming up, but I know that it's under design. And if you want to hear more about it, I'd recommend subscribing to Paul Grogan's podcast to hear more about the expansion. But I don't want to discuss the expansion too much here because this game is going to be complex enough as is. Starting off with discussing the game, I want to talk about the components of the game. Now, Albert, feel free to interrupt me anytime if you want to get a little bit more clarification on something, because I believe that you haven't played the game before. I have not. Before we get into the details of the game, who designed it? Vlada Shavato. Vlada Shavato. Okay. He designed a bunch of other games. Who has designed a bunch of other games. That's right. So now getting into the gameplay of the game, Mage Knight starts off with a modular board. You get a set of map tiles. Now, each of these map tiles is basically a bunch of individual hexes put together into a hex. So each map tile is essentially a hex of hexes. And each map tile looks different. It has a different layout of different features. Some One of them has the portal, which is your starting spot, but other ones can have a village, or a city, or a monastery, or breeding grounds, or rampaging orcs, or draconum, dragons, running around the countryside. And by having those tiles all be separate and building the map as you go along, each game is going to be random. Each game layout is going to be random. There's a few key facts for how it is that you have to set up the game. For example, in the normal game, you have to have all of the tiles oriented the same way, and you have to start with the countryside tiles. But each of the game is going to be random, so each game is going to be different. Throughout the course of the game, you're also going to be able to use magic to fuel different powers. Those magic, the basic way that you'll be able to get magic, is from a set of mana dice. Those mana dice will determine what matches those mana dice will determine what magic is accessible to you on each turn. You'll roll in the solo game, you'll roll three dice. It's one it's the amount of dice is depending upon the number of players that are playing. So in the solo game you'll roll three dice, which will determine whether there's red, green, blue, black, gold, or white magic available for you. And each turn, you'll be able to use one of those dice to fuel your actions. The other central part of the game is going to be the fame tracker, which you use to track leveling up. Whenever you do actions, whenever you beat bad guys, you'll be able to level up and get more power, and you track that on the fame tracker in the center of the board. Part of the tracker is also the ability to track your reputation. So one of, another part of the fame tracker is the ability to track your reputation. As you're playing through the game, your character is actually building up a reputation with the countryside inhabitants. So if you do good things, like slaying rampaging monsters, you get good reputation. But if you do bad things, like burning down a monastery, you get bad reputation. Now, you may want to burn down monasteries anyway, but you simply have to accept that one of the costs of your actions is you'll get bad reputation, which makes it harder to 
talk with the locals later. So in this game, you could choose to, to play a good person or a bad person, and you could win either way. It just changes the way the story evolves? Yes, exactly. The good people who are good will have an advantage when they're talking with the countryside inhabitants. They'll be able to get a benefit and be able to recruit units or get spells more easily. Whereas if you're bad, so presumably you've gone around doing things like burning down monasteries and getting artifacts to help better you that way. So both ways are routes to power. Now, there are four characters that you can play as in the base game. And each of those characters comes with a small figure, and they're pre-painted little figures. Not very detailed, but they make the game look very nice and they stand out. Especially once you already have a board built and you have those hexes out and you have the dragon tiles out. Having your character standing amidst all of it, almost looking across and considering his power, makes the game <laughs> continues to make the game look nice. Most of the time that you're going to be playing the game, you get to interact with your figure on the board, and you also get to interact with your deck of cards. These cards, the deed deck, are what allow you to do various different things in the game. Now then, let's discuss first what the cards do and the basic type of actions, and then we'll talk about the different types of cards. So the first basic type of action is moving. The board as it appears on the table is pretty small. Your character fills up a whole hex of space and can move around on the hexes. But really, those are miles and miles. So being able to move so quickly requires your character to exert a certain amount of magic power to be able to transport himself and, if he's carrying any units, all of those units along with him. So moving actually does require a specific card action. And moving across different types of terrains require different levels of move. Some other cards are used, some other types of cards are used for attacking. So you can either use cards for blocking attacks or for actually dealing an attack. Whenever you attack someone, you'll first have to deal with their incoming attack. So you can either block it or you can get an early rush and do a range attack. So different types of cards will give you the ability to block or they'll give you a base, a, a normal attack, or they'll give you special attacks, like a fire attack, or a range attack, or a siege attack. And all of those will allow you to do damage on the various enemies that are going to be out on the board. Now then, if you don't block an attack, you'll end up with wounds in your hand. Those wound cards are bad, because the way they work is they'll clog up your hand. They can't be used, they can't be discarded, there's no real way to get rid of them, except for healing. Some of your cards will allow you to heal, which starts to get rid of wounds. Now, because this ability exists, that means that sometimes you will want to not block an attack and take the wounds in order to heal them immediately or on the next round. But some of those cards will heal and allow you to clear up wounds from your hand. There's also a lot of cards that do special abilities, and there's a... These are all pretty unique Many of the cards will allow you to somehow create mana crystals or mana tokens. Now, the mana crystals are are plastic crystals of the different colors that allow you to store extra energy. Like I said, you can only use one die per turn. But if you use mana crystals, you can use multiple mana crystals per turn and therefore power more cards to their advanced actions. 
these crystals are actually sharp. I know that I've taken a few and I've managed to, unfortunately, have my board knocked off. And if you step on them, you'll realize those are sharp little buggers. Ouch. <laughs> but they look like plastic crystals and they look like magic. So for your basic action cards, everyone's going to start with 16 basic action cards. All of the four-player decks are almost the exact same thing with regards to the basic action cards. The basic action cards simply let you do one of these different types of things, move, attack, block. But each of the basic action cards has a top half and a bottom half, or a basic effect and an advanced effect. So, for example, a move card will say move two. So move two is going to be sufficient to let you move into a plane. So the base effect is free, but the more advanced effect costs one of the magic powers. Either you have to use a die, assuming that the die shows the right color, or you have to use one of your mana crystals or tokens in order to activate the advanced effect. Now, the advanced effect could be something like a range attack three, or it could be move four. And so with the higher level of move, you'll be able to move it across more terrain, for example. And the advanced effects all are more powerful. But since it costs you those precious crystals, or it costs you your one die per turn, you'll have to balance which card it is that you're going to be using this turn to fit the puzzle for how it is that you're going to get through this turn. Okay, so you're going to roll the die at the beginning of the turn, and based on what you got, now you got to figure out which is which choices to make and how to move and what actions to take. Well, actually, you roll the dice at the beginning of a round. There are there are going to be, in a normal game, six rounds, and each round is either a day or a night. Once you use a die, you will re-roll it so you can plan out for your next turn what it is that you're going to use. I see. So those dice are... Those dice can sometimes completely mess with you because, for example, during the daytime, if a die comes up black, so the die is dead, the die is set to nighttime mode, and you cannot use a nighttime die during the day. So you want to, so as more of them turn to black, unfortunately, sometimes you might end, even end up being left with absolutely no dice to finish off the, finish off the round with until they're all re-rolled when they give them the next round. But you can use one of those dice to power one of your actions, and sometimes it becomes a puzzle trying to figure out, well, which one should I use in order to get what done during this turn? Now, then each of those cards, although they might say something like move two or attack two, all of them can be played sideways for either a move one, an attack one, or a block one. So you always can use cards almost as a wild action, so that you can try and get something done. For example, if you're trying to attack someone and he requires five points of damage to be able to knock him down, and you only have four, well, if you have a card that doesn't say anything about attack, you can still play on its side to be able to get an extra point of attack in on him and kill him. So that adds to the level of puzzle that you're going to be doing, is maybe some of these cards you want to turn on their side in order to use it to enhance a card for a move or an attack. How big is your hand in this game? You start off with a hand of five. As you level up, so your hand size will increase. Okay. There are also other ways of getting your hand size to increase. So those are the basic cards. Now, there's also advanced action cards. Every other time when you level up, one of the things you'll be able to get is an advanced action card. These are all unique. 
And so the game comes with a pack of unique advanced action cards. These are how your character is going to feel like he's leveling up and becoming cooler throughout the course of the game. Is you'll get to add these advanced action cards to your deck. Now, the being able to add these cards to your deck is one of the primary ways that deck building comes into these games. It's a very slow deck building, though. Normally, when I say deck builder, what I think of is how on your whole turn you're playing cards quickly and you're moving through your deck, I don't know, 20 times per game. Whereas in this game, you're only going to move through your deck six times per game. Which means that the card that you bought this round, you may only see one more time if you're towards the end of the game. So it's a very slow deck builder, but at the same time, it helps create a feeling where you're leveling up your character and getting access to newer, cooler abilities. Now, that in terms of how cool the abilities are, many of the advanced actions don't feel as cool as things like the spells. When you defeat a mage tower, you'll get access to the spell cards. Spell cards are very powerful. Spell cards can be decisive and can entirely upset full, uh, and, and can entirely upset the game. They can do things like entirely destroy an enemy or prevent them from attacking or allow you to move halfway across the board. These are very powerful abilities, but because they're so powerful, they always require a single Mana. They always require one of the basic colors to use. And the advanced action requires a black one, the knight type, and a regular mana. So the advanced ones can't even be used unless you use some special ability. You can't use the advanced spells at, during the daytime. These are very powerful cards. And I know that every time I get one of these, with these, I feel very cool. And I know that I start building up whole <laughs> rounds trying to think, well, when am I going to be able to get access to my spell card? Because I can build up a whole turn just around these spell cards. Wow, okay. The last type of card are the unit cards. Now, unit cards are gotten through one of the the last type of basic action, which I didn't mention before. And this is influence. Now, then I said that you can interact with the locals. So, for example, you can go to a village and start hanging out with the locals and be able to try and recruit a unit, for example, a set of villagers or foresters. Or you can hover to a mage tower and start recruiting a set of golems. These units aren't added to your deck. Instead, these units are actually left face down on the board. And the number of units that you can control at once is determined by your level. Now, because these are left face down on the board, that gives you a lot of flexibility about when is that you can do it. Because you'll be drawing from your deck, you won't necessarily know when that crucial attack will come up, but you'll know you can always rely on your units for an extra point of attack or block, whatever it is that the units do, so that you can start, again, building up your turn around it and planning for when it is that you want to spend those units to progress across the board. Uh, units can also be used to take damage. So if uh, if you would have taken a wound to your hand, instead, you can put it on a unit and let the unit take the damage. Now, that does mean that you're not going to be able to use the unit until you heal the unit. But that way, the unit is getting damage and it's not clogging up your hand with extra wound cards. Now, units are powerful and f- and part of their power is in their flexibility. So when you're going the good route, so then you'll be able to get a lot of influence with locals. So often you'll be able to get units for free. Very useful. One last component I want to talk about, which is not 
a card. Instead, it's tokens, um, chipboard tokens. These are your skill tokens. Each character comes with a set of 10 skills. These skills make each character very unique. For, exi- for example, one of the characters uses his, uses her skills to convert wound cards into magic. Another, car- another character has all their skill, all of his skills set up to start changing units around. Another character has a set of skills that create extra magic just by turning them over so you can use those once per round. These skills make each character play very differently, which means that each time you're playing a different character, it feels different than the last time you played the game. Even if you had the same map setup? Even if you had the same map setup, if you're playing it with a different character, you will have to come about it at a different way. For example, if you're playing with the Arithia, who's the one that converts wound cards, you'll want to try and get wound cards to be able to take advantage of her unique abilities. Whereas with another character, you'll want to focus on getting units. Okay. Um, sometimes also it can even get more dynamic when you're playing solo, so then you have to pick one of the other characters, and every time you level up, one of that other character's abilities will come to a central pool. And so next turn, you can pick, instead of taking one of your abilities, you can pick one of that character abilities. So sometimes you get these interesting mix-ups, match-up, so sometimes you get these interesting (laughs) mash-ups of different skills, which, again, create a very different game from the last time that you played. Okay, that's very cool. So in order to help give you the feeling of how the game plays, I want to describe how a battle would work. So, for example, if I come across a rampaging Draconum, which are the dragons that are running around the countryside once you get to the advanced abilities. So, the first thing that I have to do, do is, assuming that I've moved over there on a previous turn, I'm able to challenge the Draconum from an adjacent space, because it's not in a building. I'm able to challenge it from an adjacent space. So, the first thing that'll happen is if I have any ranged attacks... So then I can go ahead and use the ranged attack to be able to defeat the enemy before they have a chance to damage me. Now with Draconum, this can be very hard. For example, a Draconum typically have a high amount of health. So for instance, I might be fighting a Draconum with nine health points. Pulling together nine ranged attack can be very difficult. I may be able to pull three from one of my units and one from one of my skills and maybe another three from one of my cards. But to be able to pull together a full nine can be very difficult. So let's assume that I'm not able to take them out fully with ranged attacks. So the next thing that they'll do is they'll attack me. Now the way attacking that for them works is there's a stat listed on the side of their token which shows what type of attack they'll do. And there's a number of different types of attacks. For instance, there could be a cold attack or a fire attack or a brutal attack, or a swift attack, and each one of these is a different type of attack. And there's actually, on the back of the rulebook, a nice little quick reference guide for the different types of attacks. But let's say, for example, I'm fighting a Draconum that is going to do an ice attack. Since it's doing an ice attack, any of my ice defenses are going to be halved, so I want to make sure that I'm using a fire defense against it, or a regular defense against it, to ensure that I'm not going to be suffering from that. If I can pull together the full amount of block, then it won't do any damage on me. But let's assume that I'm fighting a really bad bad guy, and it's doing more damage to me than I'm able to actually block. If I don't pull together the right number of block, we're going to have to do assigned damage. 
Now, assigned damage works based upon your armor. Armor in this game doesn't actually allow you to avoid wounds. Armor determines how many wounds you're going to take. So if you're tougher, if your armor's higher, you're going to take less wounds. So let's say that he's doing 7 against me. Because I've leveled up pretty high, I'm all the way at 4. So each time you can't negate all of the damage, you'll have to take a wound. So the first time he's doing 7 against me and I have 4 armor, so then I'll take one wound and reduce him down to three. So then I'll take a second wound and reduce it down to negative one. So with two wounds, I've reduced all of his damage. So those two wounds will go into my hand. Once I've dealt with assigning damage, I'll be able to then use a regular attack or any other special attacks to start weighing into him. So I can use all those ranged attacks I couldn't pull together, so I was already at seven. So now I have just a few more attacks that I can do, to be able to bump him over to nine and finish him off. I've been wounded in doing so, and I've used probably a bunch of my cards in doing so, but I managed to defeat the Dakrona. Now, this probably sounds a little bit like a puzzle, which is how the game does feel like. The game feels like a puzzle. When you're having a set of... uh, uh, When you have a hand of cards in front of you, and you have to puzzle out how it is that you're going to most economically defeat this unit, and when you're fighting in a city where it's sometimes four or five or six units coming at you, be able to figure out how it is that you're going to survive this battle and still beat them off can become very difficult and complicated and fun, for me at least. I like that puzzle, and I like being able to think how I'm going to use my hand as efficiently as possible to be able to defeat and succeed at this encounter. Yeah, I agree. That can can be very fun when you puzzle out a way to do it very efficiently. So one of the typical goals of the game is to conquer a city, and the city will typically be quite fortified, a number of enemies, all of them charging at you at once, and you'll typically have to beat them off, maybe kill one of them, take wounds from the other ones, retreat, heal up, and then try it again, sometimes over multiple turns. Being able to beat the final city, which is usually quite a high-level city, is where it is where a lot of the difficulty and the, the most challenging part of the puzzle is going to be. Now, I know that I recently have been liking a player-designed scenario called the Draconum Destruction, which is actually available on the guild. It was a recent Mage Knight challenge created by Flan Christensen. And in this one, there's a bunch of draconum that have littered across the board and are rampaging through villages and the cities, and you have to go through and defeat all of the draconum. I very much was liking this scenario as a goal of the game. Gave it a lot of mix-up over just your typical conquer the city. Speaking of the cities, let's talk about a few of my thoughts about the game. One of them is going to be the cities. You mentioned way back at the beginning of this, Albert, about how this game is made by the people who make clicks. Now, the, mm-hmm. the cities are clicks. You click up the, and down the city to show what level the city is going to be at. So if you want a challenging game, you can set it to eight and levels eight and 12 for two cities of the game, which is going to be a very challenging game. <laughs> but I find that really hard to see. The way it works is when you click it up higher, so then you'll see small little circles in different colors that show what type of enemies are going to be attacking you. The circles are really small, and they actually get a little bit of shadow because they're actually in a notch. If you've ever seen a clicks before, 
So the circles are actually in a notch, and sometimes you can't tell the difference between those circles. And that means also that you, you click you click it up once at the beginning of the game to determine what level you're at, then you don't really ever mess with the clicks again. Okay, so it doesn't really come into play other than when you set it up. Entirely not, when you set it up. And you also these cities the these city clicks take up a space on the board. Now then granted, you don't ever actually walk on the city space on the board. When you enter a city space, you have an unlimited number of players that can be there. So you take your tile off and put it on the card next to it, which also shows whatever special abilities are on the city. So possibly the city tiles help show that you can't be there because it's taken up with the city, uh, with the city clicks. But really these city clicks are redundant and poorly designed. Personally, I went and printed off a special card which shows in bigger imaging about the different types of enemies and which will come out when you're playing it. And if I'm playing over multiple days and I've changed the, the level from the basic start or something like that, I'll put a paper clip on it to show what level it is that I'm using. That seems more workable, yes. Yeah, so this card, kudos to the designer for it. It's available on BGG. But I think the card is much better than these city clicks I don't really think these city clicks should have been in the game. And I think that's one of my few negatives about the game. Another negative that I have about the game is that, like I said, this is a very slow deck builder. It's really almost not a deck builder. If you're someone who likes deck building and, and you want to play a deck building game, I'd recommend getting on Airborne Commander now while it's on Kickstarter or Go By Friday or a different deck builder game. Because in this game, usually you go through your deck six times. It's a very slow deck builder. I know that when I've been explaining this to other people, it's more like the deck is used to restrict what actions you have available to you. It's almost like it's an action selection game where the deck is spitting out what restricted choices you have. And you have the ability to expand what restricted choices you have later on in your action selection. It just has never felt like a deck builder to me. It's more like an action selection game. Yeah, it sounds like it, most deck builders, the deck building is the game. And, and this is more, it's more a tool just to help drive the game along. It's definitely not the focus of the game. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just simply a comment. It's not a deck builder. It's, but that's an okay thing because what this is, is this is a puzzle game where you get a feeling like you are a mage knight leveling up, exerting your power to do huge, entirely over-the-top fantastic abilities, destroying enemies, laying waste to the countryside, making challenges, going down into a dungeon, controlling cities, beating off enemies. This has a lot of feeling to it. I know that as I'm playing through the game, I'm left feeling like I'm a powerful mage knight going through the game. And I also have this this very thinky puzzle, this cerebral puzzle game of figuring out how it is that I'm going to beat off my enemies. I know that the game I played just yesterday, I cut to the end of it and I had gone halfway through my deck and I'd used all of my spell cards. I'd used all of my attack cards. And I knew that for the rest of my deck, I would, I would just had no way of solving the puzzle. But part of that is actually part of the fun. Being able to solve the puzzle the best way you can when it comes up this is a cerebral game, and if you like those puzzle cerebral games, I think you will like this one. 
Okay, so how long does a game of Mage Knight last? I imagine it depends a lot on the scenario you're playing. There are shorter scenarios. Now, the, there's a Blitz scenario where you basically give yourself a few extra abilities and get set up to start. I think that this Draconum Destruction scenario is medium length, maybe a little bit shorter. But by medium length, I mean like two, three hours or more. Wow, okay. Um, the game is not a short one, which means that even though I like this game a lot, I don't play it as often as I would like to. I don't have a table set up anywhere where I can leave this game set up, which means that the only way I get to play this game is if I start it after the kids go to bed, and I basically say, you know, today's going to be a mage night day, and I play it till one or whenever it is that I get done with the game. <laughs> and it's just a mage night evening, and I make an evening out of it, but it's a very, it's a long game. And I almost wish it was a shorter game. I wish there was some way of making it even shorter where I could get it done in an hour consistently and still feel like I'm going through it and beating enemies. But having played other shorter games, they don't get that feeling like you have in Mage Knight. They don't give you that same feeling of being able to level up and having all this depth to it of the different types of locations and actions and skills and enemies Everything that goes into it, because of its complexity and because of its length, gives it a very full and vibrant feeling. But it is a long game. And that's just simply something you have to weigh. If long games are going to be something you're going to play less of, you simply have to understand that when you're walking into this game. And, okay. and I know for me, that's one of the reasons why, if you ask me what my top game is, unfortunately, it's not Mage Knight. But that's really because, not at all because of the feeling, because I love playing the game. But finishing the game up at one, one o'clock and going, man, it's one o'clock and I'm finished with the game. Awesome game, but it's one o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, honestly, that's one thing that's kept me away from buying the game is, it's knowing that it takes a long time. And it's also, it's a little bit expensive. I think it retails for about 80 or $90. And that with a playtime, knowing that I'll, I'll, I'll get to play it rarely has always, scared me away from it, but it, it sounds really interesting, actually. The game has expansions. Can you talk about them a little bit? How many are there? So, there are two expansions. There's one smaller expansion, which gives you another character, Krang, and there's a second expansion for the Lost Legion, which gives you Volcare and another character, Wolfhawk. And Volcare creates a whole new type of scenario where Volcare basically marches across and you have to go stop Volcare from marching all the way across the whole, the whole map of the game. Okay. It also adds in more tokens and more cards and more abilities. As complicated as this game is already, I don't want to get too much into the different variations that you can get in from the expansions. I know that there's a, um, are the expansions also solitaire friendly? Yes, the expansions are all solitaire-friendly also. Okay. I wish that with the most recent expansion, there would have been more solo-friendly uh, scenarios, but I'm happy that people keep coming up with them, like this Draconum Destruction one. I liked the Draconum Destruction one. That was a lot of fun to play through. So as long as I keep hearing more of these neat scenarios, I'm happy to keep playing the game. Excellent. Well, let me ask you. So, Albert, from based on all this, what do you think of the game? It sounds really cool. I really the way you described it, the the puzzle aspect, that all that sounds really awesome. I like the uh, the idea of having the hand of cards and trying to figure out the best move to get to whatever my goal happens to be at that time. You know, how do I use my cards most effectively? 
And that sounds really interesting. I, I like the leveling up, and I like, you know, it, like you said, it's a big game, and it sounds really big, and it sounds like the, the effort to level up and all that will feel really epic and really satisfying after after a night of playing it. So it does sound very, very interesting. Very cool. Very cool. All right, so that's Mage Knight. All right, um, that was a really cool review on uh, Mage Knight. And now we have another segment, yet one more. Today I thought it would be fun to talk to Julius and interview him, since he's a new host, we need to, to get an idea a little more about him. Um, I'm ready for anything, Albert. All right. <laughs> okay, so, so Julius, how long have you been gaming? How long have I been gaming? Well, I've been gaming for an awfully long time. Uh, getting into the hobby game is more recently, but getting into gaming has been a long time. I have always been a gamer, and I know at a high school it was more focused on role-playing games and video games. Okay. Um, I even know that in high school was my first stint at publicity with regards to gaming, too, if you're interested in hearing the story. Sure. So I know that at that point in time – have you ever heard of EverQuest, Albert? Yes. Yes, I have. So EverQuest is an online role-playing game, a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. And I had liked, I had actually been doing some other role-playing games around that point in time. And essentially these are playing like what you would expect in a traditional role-playing game or a LARP, except that you used your characters instead of actually physically doing it. So you were essentially LARPing online. And I never liked EverQuest for this, even though we were basing it in our own miniature EverQuest system. I never liked using EverQuest for it. So a guy who named his company Glitchless opened up, and he, this was in the days before Kickstarter. This was back in mid-1990s, I believe. And so he opened up and said that he was designing and developing a new a new type of massively multiplayer online role-playing game, which would actually be more of a role-playing game. Hmm. And for this role-playing game, he wanted to have it be more immersive, and he called this game Dawn. And I was only in high school at the time, and I started following it and talking about it on the community forums and chatting with the designer about it. So at one point in time, a at the time, online gaming magazine saw that I was talking to people about it, talking with the designer about it, and said, hey, do you want to come write articles for it? We'd like to make a sub uh, a, a sub website devoted just to Dawn, and we'd need someone to head it. And I said, does it make a difference that I'm still in high school? <laughs> Their response was, well, we need everyone to be 18 or over, so we will tell you to tell us that you're 18 or over. Are you 18 or over? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I happened to – no, no. <laughs> but I told them I was because I was told to tell them, and I wasn't getting paid anyway, so it didn't matter. But I actually got to head this whole thing. Now, then, after doing this for about six months <clears throat> and still not seeing any good product from this, I feel like this is in, in early Kickstarter days. After not seeing any product from them for about six months, I went and man managed to chat up with a guy who had offer to help design the game and by help I mean get paid to for mm. designing the game and he had talked with them 
and I actually went to their site to interview with them. And then after he came back, so he was rejected. But after he came back, I went and interviewed him. And he said that the whole thing was basically vaporware. I said, no way. We've seen screenshots. We've seen gameplay demos. We've seen things from them. It's like the whole thing's basically vaporware. They have nothing. And so I started bugging the designer about it. Basically got a mission. Yeah, the whole thing was actually vaporware. And I remember saying, guys, you need to just move on to a brand new thing because this is, this is nothing worth, this is nothing worth anybody's time reading what it is that I'm writing. Not worth anybody's time reading if it is that he's writing, just leave. And so a couple of weeks after he did that, so basically everyone who was reading my stuff left. A lot of people who are reading his stuff left. And he ended up converting the whole thing into a web-based, text-based, <laughs> tiny little JavaScript game. And I was like, um, <laughs> so it did eventually get created at least. It got turned into, it got turned into <laughs> junk. It got turned into junk is what happened. That's a shame. Those are my early experiences with gaming. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that brings back memories. Gosh, so, so how often do you play solo games? As often as I can. Uh, I know that I'm the father of two wonderful children, a four year old and one year old who bring no end of joy and frustration to my day. So I will play solo games whenever I can. Occasionally my four-year-old will help with some things. And as I've said before, that adds a nice set of randomness to my games. I find myself playing solo games at least every few days. The depth and complexity of what it is that I'm playing will vary depending upon what it is that I like. It could be Pandemic the Cure or Oni Rim or Friday or something Depends on what it is that I'm liking, but I'll usually get a good solo game in every few days. Okay. Yeah, it's funny talking about uh, to kids. Um, I've noticed lately my son will occasionally come looking for a solo game to play. You know, we play we play head-to-head games a lot, but every once in a while he says, Hey, I'm looking for what, what's a good solo game I could play today, Dad? Or Poppy, as he calls me. Um, and, and I find that so interesting just because because he's so used to seeing me playing solo games, he thinks it's just normal. And, you know... It, I, I know it's still not a, something everybody does. A lot of people do. And it's fun to see that. Well, it's growing. Fortunately, it's yep. growing. So so what are some of your favorite solo games? So my favorite solo games? Well, I know I just went into all of this about Mage Knight, and I would say that Mage Knight is one of my favorites, but not my favorite. Uh, I know that how I got into solo gaming was actually through Friday, and I think that Friday is still probably my favorite solo game. Um, I know that... Uh, I I like a game that is designed for solo, and Friday's designed for solo. It plays very well solo, and it's not a big box game. It's very small, very compact, but still gives you a lot of depth of decision for it. So I really like the way that Friday plays, and also that I like it's a very obtainable end goal. You have to make your way all the way through the levels and then beat off the pirates. It, there's a very set goal and a very good game and a narrative and an arc to the game. So I'd say that Friday is probably one of my favorites. Okay. Of late, I've really been liking also Pandemic the Cure, both multiplayer and solo. I've been enjoying that one a lot too. I find it extremely hard. Especially if I'm using three characters. I could do it with two, but with three, it's I haven't won yet. Really? I actually think three is the easiest way to play the game. Hmm. Because you set two of the characters to starting to develop cures, and you let one of the characters run around trying to keep you from having outbreaks. Okay, I'll try that. I'll have to try that. I've so, just I've had unlucky rolls some of the games too. You no, know, last time I played, I think my very first roll I had 
three or, or four uh, infection. I know I've introduced the pandemic the cure to a lot of people at my board gaming group mm-hmm. at the comic seller. If you're ever in Memphis, come to the Comic Cellar. Great place. But anyway, I've introduced Pandemic the Cure to a number of people up there. I know that some of the times when you're on that last die roll and you either find a cure or you're completely overrun. And when it comes to me, I'm rolling the dice one at a time. Sometimes <laughs> one, 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 zero, one. Guys, how can we still not have got a cure with like eight, nine dice and we still didn't do it? <laughs> oh, it's great. That is a great game. Okay, so so what do you look for in a solo game? In any game, I look for depth of decision. I want to not be just turning my you know fate over to the game. I want to be involved in decision and have the decision be deep and meaningful, something I actually have to make a choice. In solo games, I try and want I, I want to have a narrative be evoked in the game. I'm not typically a fan of beat your own score games. I usually prefer to play games with more definable goals. I know that, unfortunately, there's still a lot of beat-your-own-score beat games that I do like. For example, I do really like um, Bullfrogs, which I mentioned before. Um, I have a high score of 38 in that one right now, and I haven't been able to beat it, and I keep trying it over and over again. <laughs> I usually prefer to have games which have a more definable ending, even though I do also like some games which just have a beat your own score type of type of thing. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I have found some, it's hit or miss with the beat your own score sort of thing. And I find I get the most enjoyment out of it if I don't really care how well I do at the end. And I just have fun during the playing. Especially because I, I won't compare my score against previous games I've played. Well, I know that for me, especially since as a religious Jew and I do get a lot of gaming in on Shabbos, so when I can't write and record my score, what I find I've done is, I don't know if you've ever seen them before, but they're little little counters which you typically put on ends of knitting needles. Mm -mm. And so they count up. Normally you use it for counting your knits. So you'll do one, two, three, four, and you'll count up. What I found is every time I get a new game with a beat your score mechanic, I'll go and buy another pack of these counters, and typically there's two, and I'll throw it into the game. And then that keeps track of what my highest score is. So, for instance, I have one in Bullfrogs that says 38. So every time oh. I pull out my solo game, I'll also pull this out and be like, 38 is what I'm beating today. And if I ever beat it, that that counter is going up 39. <laughs> oh, that's a cool idea. Okay. I have to look for one of them. Um, so, are the, what are, what, so what upcoming games are you looking forward to? So another thing also that I like in solo games is that it really is designed to be played solo. I know that I've seen some other variants out there on BGG for some of my other favorite games, like I own Castles of Burgundy. And I know that there's a variant developed for playing Castles of Burgundy solo, and I know that there's another variant designed for um, Bora Bora to be played solo. Even though these variants allow you to play solo... I really prefer games that are actually designed for being played solo. Either either it's actually built into the core set of the rules, or it shows that they put some thought into developing it solo. Um, I know that there's some other games which have specific decks that are used to be played solo. For example, in Imperial Settlers, so there's a specific deck that you use when you're playing it solo. And these, when you have these sort of concessions being made to be played solo, I feel like they really enhance the game a lot and 
help help the game be played much more easily when you're playing solo, and I like it more. I, I like seeing these solo components coming. Okay. Yeah, I, I do appreciate those. Um, are there any uh, classic games you'd like to see reprinted? Uh, although there's not many classic games I'd love to see reprinted, I know there are some classic themes that I really like to see used in some games. There's two themes that I really love to see used. One of them is Inspector Gadget type theme. I really like to see that you are, I, I mean, I don't want, for this one, I don't want the silliness of Inspector Gadget. I want the idea that you're an inspector trying to go around and you have access to different weaponry and things that you could just sort of pop off and get more and get later. I'd almost like to see this almost as a deck building game <laughs> as you're building up your level of gadgets and going around solving bad things. I, I want to see an inspector gadget type of game. And another one that I want to see being made silly. This one, this one has to be silly in art and silly in gameplay is get smart. Have you, have you ever heard of get smart? Yes. Yes. So I'd love to see a silly get smart game where you're playing, not as the get smart guy, that the get smart guy is almost like an NPC and sort of running around doing pratfalls and messing things up. And your whole goal of the game is, I don't know, convert to spy mission while you're working with him or something like that. So he's just messing <laughs> things up. So yeah, you got to accomplish a spy mission even though he's helping you. Something like that, <laughs> yes. So, or that you have to help him, or I don't know what. But some sort of funny get spy game where the whole time you're trying to do something and you just can't help but laugh when the card comes out that says that he does something else silly. I'd like to see one. <laughs> I don't want it to be a throwaway game. I want it to still be challenging and strategic, but I want it to be funny. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I'd like to see. That sounds very cool. <laughs> okay. Are there any upcoming games you're looking forward to? The whole list of the Kickstarter ones that I just said. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll tell you, I'm currently backing a bunch of those on Kickstarter. Let's see here. Wish list. So I know that I'm backing a lot of these games on Kickstarter, uh, I'm currently backing, although I can't promise that I'm going to keep all of these pledges, but I'm currently backing Between Two Cities, Bottom of the Ninth, Thunderbirds, Far Space Foundry, Mistfall, Airborne Commander, Burgle Bros. A lot of these Kickstarters, I really like backing them. I like being involved in things, and when I'm backing things with Kickstarter, I really get a chance to keep chatting back with the Kickstarter people. I know that I also am looking forward to Dead Men Tell No Tales, I'm looking forward to, um, I know I'm also looking forward to V Commandos coming out. I know I'm looking forward to Nations the Dice game coming out. I'm looking forward to more things coming out than I can actually afford. <laughs> That's the problem, isn't it? That's always a problem. I'm really looking forward to Nations also. That's, that one that I'm really interested in because I really enjoyed the, the board game of Nations. Mm-hmm, right. That was a lot of fun. And so the dice game I've been looking forward to. Right. Yeah, for sure. Do you also play video games? Um, I play a little bit of video games. Um, currently, I don't have any video game systems. I just have a PC, so I don't. Uh, I don't really have so much time for it. And usually, I prefer if I'm sitting alone. I'd usually prefer to play a solo game over a video game. Sometimes I prefer to play a video game. Usually, not exactly. Uh, none of these long ones. I'd love to play the new Final Fantasies. I think that probably came through earlier on. Uh, but I, I don't have much time. I don't have enough time to play too many video games. Okay. Okay. So you've been involved with playtesting games a lot. Um, can you mention some that you've been involved with? Mention some that I've been involved with? Yeah, I imagine there's some you can't talk about still. 
I think I'm allowed to mention those ones that I've been involved with. Let's see here. Some of the ones that have been more memorable for me are I've been involved in Ashes with Plat Hat games. I've been involved in Dark Moon with Stronghold games. Uh, I've also been involved in a lot of independent ones. I was involved in... I'm currently doing Roleplayer with Thunderworks games. Uh, I did Bullfrogs. I did some for Between Two Cities. Uh, I did Quest for the Open Tavern. Let's see here. Those are a lot of the more memorable ones. Um, I've done a bunch of other ones, but I can't remember any one specifically other than those right now. That's quite a few there. Um, what is it you like about playtesting? Playtesting gives me a chance to really be involved with the designers and with the design of the game. Usually after playing a game for me, I like the cerebral idea of just sitting back and thinking about what it is that I enjoyed, what it is that I took away from the game, why it is that the game was designed and developed this way, and just thinking about how the game was made and how it is that I like the game, almost as if I'm making a review of the game to myself. When I'm involved in a playtest for the game, so I'm able to you know, keep that up over a long period of time, and really a lot of the time, my thoughts and ideas will help the designer change his ideas of the game. That, you know, when I'm doing these playtests, I'll mention these ideas, and the designer will say, hey, that's a great idea, why don't we go and evolve that, or I can help make changes, and it really helps me get more involved with the game, and I like being more involved with the game, I like being right up, uh, right in there, and almost living out the game and having myself being completely immersed with it. So the idea of being able to just be completely into the game and also having my ideas make changes to the final design of the game, both of those are very exciting to me. Okay. Yeah, I like, uh, personally, I've enjoyed playing, I've done a few playtests and I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed getting to try and break a game. I find that fun. Try, trying to play it and see different ways I could do things that, you know, and find bugs. I know it. that for me also, I did some playtesting for some of the, the PMP games for the contest last year, for the solo contest last year. I haven't really mm-hmm. done any this year because last year I almost got, you know, burned out with the, first of all, because they're all happening all at once, it's hard to make a choice, but which one is it that I want to be, you know, I want to be playtesting. I can't do them all. So it becomes a difficult decision about which one is that I have to pick. And so, Unfortunately, sometimes that just turned out I don't really want to pick any one of them. So, and also with those, they're in such development until the time that the contest closes. Now, once the contest closes, so they're not in development anymore, but until the contest closes, so the amount of development is going on so much that it's hard for me really to get involved because they get keep getting changed so much. Yeah, so right. I know that I'd like to do more testing more playtesting for solo games, but a lot of them come out around now with this contest, and I just haven't found one that really calls out to me. And you know, honestly, if anybody out there has any good suggestions for something they'd like my playtesting on, feel free to give me a shout out. Cool. So now, so you know, a few weeks ago, I did a one episode, and I mentioned how I really want to do more interviews on this show. How how this year I'd like to focus on doing that more. So you contacted me and said, why don't you interview Scott Alms and Michael Cole? And so I talked to them about the Tiny Epic Galaxies. You've also mentioned you'd like to do more interviews in the show. So what are some designers you'd like, you're excited to talk about or talk to, I guess? I don't know if I can say anyone in specific. I'd be excited to talk about all of them. 
That's fair. <laughs> I apologize for such a non-answer, but there's so many good designers out there, and the more of them that start creating good solo stuff, I'm happy to speak to any of them. What designers would you not want to talk to? No. <laughs> I can name a few, trust me. Uh, but I mean, one of the reasons why I want to keep talking to more of these designers is because I think it really helps to get almost the idea of solo gaming out there. I brought up with Michael Coe and Scott Alms about interviewing them because they took a, a new idea for them about being able to do something solo. I know that for their previous releases, Tempic Defenders, they obviously incorporated solo because it was cooperative play. But for Tiny Kingdoms, which they did beforehand, they never really integrated into it because they never really expected Solo to be popular. And I'll tell you, I know Solitaire is both popular and timely and a good thing for most designers to be thinking of. I think that one of the things that we can do as we continue to talk to designers, we're almost making other designers aware of the demand that exists for solo games, which is one of the reasons why I want to keep talking about to them and keep throwing ourselves out there to the designers. The more designers that become aware of the demand and the benefits of having a solo component to their game will help more solo games start coming out. And that's one of the reasons why I think you're starting to see even more and even more times where when a, when a game comes up with Kickstarter, they'll add in a solo variant to start bringing in, either because it's good for people to learn the game, or it's good for people who want to continue playing the game when there's no one around, or because it's good for people who simply always like having a solo game to play with. And I think you'll start seeing it more and more as we continue to spread the word about how good solo gaming is and how accepted it is to more and more designers. And that's one of the reasons why I think that the interviews are good for us and good for the designers. It helps the designers up their game on solo. Yeah, that's right. That is right. Um, so one cool thing about getting a, a new co-host is that uh, you know whenever you have a new person, it always brings in fresh new ideas. Um, you know, such as your solo story section that you came up with, which I really like. So, is there anything else you'd like to see the podcast getting into? I know that I have a couple of ideas for other segments that we want to start talking about. I want to talk, get more interviews, um, but I'm also looking forward to maybe talking with you about how to classify games or how to talk about designing solo games, how you would design a solo game or design a solo variant, or how it is that you like playing the game, setting things up, keeping track of your ideas. I know that having this discussion of ideas, almost like before where I got to share my idea of keeping track with the uh, knitting counter, all of these ideas help bring more ideas and get them out there. And I'd love to hear people's feedback on some of the ideas and ideas that they've had too. Mm-hmm. That, that's a good idea. It'd be fun to to have a segment like that in the show where let's talk about, I don't know, ways to store your games and, and invite anybody to come on the show and talk about it. Maybe. Maybe. Have members from the One Player Guild come along. All right. I don't really have any more questions. I hope uh, everybody enjoyed listening to this. Thanks, Julius, for putting up with the questions. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for interviewing me. I'll have to turn this around on you one time. <laughs> I'll have to interview you one time. All right. Fair enough. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Don't forget, next week, Saturday, that is the 22nd, no, that will be the 21st, is the Print and Play Solitaire Roundtable discussion. And that will be at 5 p.m. Eastern. So so if you're interested in it, make sure you, you tune in and listen to it. So please note that that time has actually changed from last show, 
or the date has been changed. That's right, because the, the previous date was actually today at 5. So speaking of new segments and solo stories, let's continue with the solo stories segment. Like I said last time, as I see specific stories or stories of interest come up on the Solitary Games on Your Table geek list, I wanted to specifically call it out. And this week, I happened to see a story from Adam Garbett, who posted a story about an unexpected victory in Eldritch Horror. For those who aren't familiar with Eldritch Horror, it's a investigative game where you're going around the board trying to solve the clues, uh, defeat the enemies, and make sure that you can banish off the older old ones before they can come out and cause chaos and terror across your board. So Adam posted a, an unexpected victory, which I'm just going to read out for everyone because I liked the turns and twists and surprises of it. So, quoting Adam now, the game started off well. I gained a clue early on, and there still weren't many gates on the board. The first mystery required me to kill monsters with a toughness value of up to twice the investigators. I managed to do this with a couple of early lucky rolls. The next mystery spawned Nug. So in the next few turns, the doom shot down to two. I was ready to pack up and go to bed on the next turn. And uh, I may not have played quite correctly here, which I believe he did. I had an encounter in Tokyo that allowed me to take three health of any monster. Checking the reference guide, which states that the monster means any monster, I targeted Nug. Then I got the Blood Flows Mythos card, which said that the lead investigator discards one monster of his choice and loses health equal to its toughness. So Leo had enough health to do that, so we went ahead and got rid of Nug. Still had Doom at two, and with all the mounted monsters on the board, it was still probably going to go to zero on the next Reckoning. So the next turn... Mystery number three moved all of the clues out to the wilderness spaces. Since there are four on the board, all of them were now within travel range of the investigators. So basically, it was almost like a dice roll about whether we were going to be able to win or if the bad guy was going to awaken. So the first investigation that I found just needed me to take a dark pact for the clue. I obviously did. Second asked me to test observation on two dice, but the success gave me the clue, and I rolled a four and a six for that. The clues were added to the mystery card, and the final mythos card was just a rumor that spawned a clue and nothing else. So I made it through the final mythos card for a really surprising victory. So thank you to Adam for a great little story there. I liked reading it because I know that such sort of things have definitely happened to me for a game or two. And I always like reading the other people's surprising victories. So thank you, Adam, for posting that on the Geek List. Yeah, thank you. That was really neat. I will be contacting you to send you a die. Okay, and that's it. That's a that's a show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. So we do have some new contact information for you guys because we got a new uh, domain name, OnePlayerPodcast.com. You guys can feel free to reach out to us. I'm Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com. And I'm Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com. And you can also find our brand new Twitter feed, at OnePlayerPodcast. So you can reach out to us on Twitter or follow us there. I'll try and give you guys some special news and updates on solo games as I see them over there. Or you can just reach out to me for a chat. And you can always find us on BGG also. I'm JL Bird on BGG. And I'm Fractaloon. Hope to see you guys soon, and thank you for listening. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected under a Creative Commons license and can be found at gemendo.com. The show is published under Creative Commons, non-commercial, share-alike license. Thanks for listening.